it's really hard to, I think, for my family to listen to what I'm going through. Because, um, you know, I'm still like the person that they saw as a child and as a teenager. And... The person speaking is an attending physician in emergency medicine working at an academic medical center in New York City. I'm not introducing her because she asked me not to. One of the physicians got in trouble for speaking with the media or in general and like... So at this point, I think it's pretty safe to assume that we're the media, which is awesome. Uh, Also, because the people in this episode are superheroes, they're going to get their own theme music. Just FYI. You know, they're not used to me talking about, like, like the atrocities that I've, like, witnessed. And It's the early morning of April the 10th. This is the birthday of my kids, Trent and Quinn. And they're spending it with their grandparents. My name is Owen Muir, and I'm a psychiatrist. I'm also the host of the podcast. This is Remotely Possible, Episode 6. We're trying to tell the story of what it felt like. So maybe my kids can understand when they're older. I do feel weird when people say, like, oh, you signed up for this. Like, how... I don't think I signed up for this. Like, this is very different than what I signed up for, I guess. Um, Like, no one has... This has not happened. Like, the last time we had a disease like this was in, what, 1918? (laughs) Like, this is something very different, and... None of us really knew what we were getting into with COVID-19. But I want to introduce you to one of my team members. Hi, my name is Sequoia Thomas Fraser, and I am a TMS technician and a Winnicott coach at Brooklyn Mines. And I didn't realize this until I listened back to that piece of tape, but you can hear really faintly in the distance an ambulance. As a TMS technician, Sequoia is directly responsible for working with patients. TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but in short, Sequoia has to touch people and put things on their head. So being really careful became really important to her. Um, Well, the first thing I do when I get to my apartment building is I take off my gloves because I have to open multiple doors and I usually have just finished washing my hands um, before coming back home. Sequoia is preparing to go to work in our offices where we take care of psychiatric patients in the middle of a pandemic. So I try to like leave whatever contamination I got on my gloves in the outside world, get into my elevator. I'm careful not to really touch or lean up against anything. And then once at my front door, then I begin the ritual of spraying everything down. The new standard of cleanliness has become obsessive. 
obsessively clean. The kind of cleaning that you don't see for most people because they know not to go that far. You don't have to wear the extra mask and gloves and scrub. You don't have to use bleach. Except in this case, all of those things are true. People are bathing a lot. And doctors, probably twice as much. Are you in the tub? I, I am. That's awesome. <laughs> Listen to the audio quality in the tub. <laughs> um, I figured I'd, I'd let the, I finished the water running. That's and then great. I'd... Do you take baths often? I do, actually. I take a lot of baths. Yeah. Um, it's very relaxing, and it's kind of, you know, my safe space, and no one can bother me. <laughs> no, I take a lot of baths. Obsessive cleaning has become a regular topic of conversation. So I get to the office, and once again, it's very, very quiet. All the businesses around us have been shut down, essentially. Um, there's maybe one or two open. Sequoia's walking into the Brooklyn Mines offices, which, at this point, are strangely free of clinicians, because we're doing everything by telepsychiatry. But procedural medicine still has to take place in a place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did the OCD patients comment on that? I've had more than one remark in which an OCD patient finds it redeeming to finally have the rest of the world on the same page as their own contamination sort of fears have finally uh, become popularized due to the COVID-19. <laughs> as one of the points I've taken away from this, the circuits in the brain that lead to illnesses like OCD, in its case, the corticostridothalamocortical circuit, exists for a reason. There are things we really should be worried about. We should obsessively clean things when COVID-19 is around so we don't get sick. So everything that's going on for our patients and their mental illness, that's using parts of your brain that are there for a reason. That reason today is COVID-19. And I pull up the gate, I unlock the door, and immediately I go into sanitizer mode again. I take off my gloves, I take off my jacket, and I spray it down, I turn it inside out. Um, I spray my shoes, I spray some of my clothing as well, anything that I was wearing, and I put on my uniform. Sequoia is not a medical professional originally. This is her first time in that role. She's taking it really seriously. Once I've settled in, I wipe down the TMS chair, I wipe down the TMS helmet, I wipe down any doorknobs or high-touch areas. Sequoia's role is that of a technician. This is similar to the respiratory techs who are helping the ventilators run and any other technician you've ever seen help a doctor use a piece of equipment. In this case, she's delivering the treatments I prescribe directly to our patients. And that is crucial, because without her there, nobody's getting it. 
Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, or TMS, involves repeated pulses of magnetic energy to the brain. It's like a big MRI, but it's on your head. This, it turns out, without any medication, can successfully treat many cases of treatment-resistant depression and severe treatment-resistant obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. This becomes increasingly important as New York shuts down its electroconvulsive therapy units in psychiatric hospitals. ECT is the gold standard for treatment of severe depression that doesn't respond to other things. Without it, we were in trouble, unless we had TMS and people like Sequoia to operate those machines. The people that I'm coming to see me have a lot of problems, but yes, people that come to see me are suffering from psychiatric disorders, and I've gotten very many grateful thank yous because this changes people's lives. It saved people's lives. People tell us as mental health professionals, you saved my life all the time, and it's true. But the volume and speed with which we do it is a bit different than other fields of medicine, particularly emergency medicine. It's usually fast-paced, but now, well, I'll let my as-of-yet-unnamed friend tell you. I mean, it's really, it's tough. It's, it's, it's really tough. Uh, <laughs> like, work sucks a lot. I mean, it's not work, it's, you know, I, it's very emotionally draining, actually, like, it's, I mean, I've, at the beginning, people were coming in and like, oh, I'm afraid that I have the coronavirus, will you test me? And we were kind of were turning a lot of people away because there was a lot of, um, the Department of Health had a lot of regulations on who could be tested and who couldn't be. And then finally they said no one could be tested unless if they're uh, admitted to the hospital. This is New York City Department of Health. And then like people were coming and then some something clicked I think maybe last week where people were like oh maybe I should stay away from the hospital and so now we're getting less traffic but I mean the people that come are very sick and when do you think the test will arrive? I don't know soon? I hope so and then what? And you'll take it? One of the weirdest things about this, from a is this happening in U.S. healthcare perspective, is we're not testing from the get-go for something you need to test for to prevent. Carlene and I are discussing having ordered some tests which look at immunoglobulins in your blood to see when you've been exposed and when you're hopefully producing immunity to COVID-19. These tests aren't available to the general public yet, but we're physicians, so we were able to order them. No, because you already have it. No, I know that if I have an active infection, mm -hmm. if it's gone, I have immunity. Mm -hmm. If I have immunity. The reason Carlene sounds so off there is because she's come down with COVID-19, or at least I think so. I was sick earlier, um, 
in maybe mid-March. I, uh, you know, sore throat, headache, cough, felt like I couldn't catch it off air. And then I had a fever of 100.2, so not technically a fever, but, and then I couldn't taste or smell anything for almost a week. Yeah, um, which kind of sucks living with a chef. Uh, he really tried, but I couldn't taste anything. I just. It turns out that the inability to smell, or anosmia in doctor speak, is one of the cardinal symptoms of COVID 19 that distinguishes it from do I just have a cold? <laughs> okay, close your eyes. Soap number one. Okay. okay. And now soap number two. Carlene insisted on test driving her anosmia with some very fragrant soaps. Remember gardenia and sandalwood. Soap number one was? Okay, here's soap number one. Gardenia? <laughs> I was holding no soap to your nose <laughs> whatsoever. I don't know. I can't smell this one. I don't feel anything. That would have been gardenia. I, this one. Working I, on it? I can't Working smell on anything. It? That would be sandalwood. Said with all the insufferable smugness of someone with an intact sense of smell. Ugh. Sorry, honey. Ugh. And it was a new pickle, but it had this, like, gross, unpickle-like Even taste. though it was a delicious half-sour. Yeah, no, it didn't taste right. Hmm. Nobody tells you about how, how difficult the pickles are going to be during COVID-19. <laughs> I mean, I could have worse trouble than not being able to taste a pickle or having a pickle taste weird. I actually stopped eating and was just drinking soup, like drinking broth, because nothing was... I didn't want to eat anything. Um, but then I like still had shortness of breath for maybe a week afterwards. Like, it took a bit to completely recuperate. Uh. The juxtaposition of the really minor and the deadly is weird. This is weird Armageddon. A friend and co-worker of mine sent me a picture of the view outside her window and she lives next door to Harlem Hospital. This is our teammate Sequoia again, bringing us back down to earth. Where they have a makeshift morgue and testing center outside. I am very well aware of the death and of the sadness that people are experiencing. And to say it doesn't weigh on me would be a lie. One of the profoundly unsettling things about COVID-19 is that you can't visit your loved ones in the hospital when they're sick. And, like, no one can have family with them. And it, like, it's tough to tell a family member that they can't come inside. Like, I had a, I had a patient come in and he was not okay. He was not breathing okay and he needed to be intubated. Because I, I mean, he was saturating very low, and I, I'm getting everything ready. Uh, and he's actually 
holding his phone and FaceTiming with a family member. We're all on FaceTime or Zoom or some kind of video chat all the time, even when we're in the hospital. Yeah, no, it sucks. It sucks. It really hurts. (laughs) Was that the last conversation? That he was having with his family member on a phone. Uh, Yeah, I was actually. I checked up on him and he did not survive. Like, not even a day. Um, And, like, I'm calling family members. I'm like, they're asking me for updates and, like, they're like, can I come in? I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. And I think that, like, hurts them more than, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't hurt them more, but, you know, I tell them the bad news and they're like, okay, like, can I see him? And I'm like, uh, I can't make that possible. I mean, it's one thing to say, like, hey, everyone's going to die. It's another one to say, like, everyone's going to die alone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mean I should feel sad because it is sad? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. But it, it like feels, it's like more than sad. It's like this helplessness and there's this fear and, and then like, I mean. One of the things that makes being a physician tolerable when you're dealing with death and dying and intensive care units is providing comfort to families in their time of loss. And that is being taken away from us, like so many other pieces of closeness and comfort by this pandemic. I don't know. I... We were having trouble intubating because, you know, you're, you're wearing all this stuff. You're wearing gowns and two pairs of gloves and this face shield and two masks and and like a hat and like my my shields are fogging up while I was trying to intubate somebody and I couldn't see anything and like I took my shield off I took off my shield to finish intubating and like I mean like I finished it and like less than 30 seconds later like what have I done what did I just do It makes me feel really good to be in service of people who need help. So this is an extension of what I feel is my moral obligation as an able-bodied, healthy young person in the world. And I don't feel like a hero. I feel like someone who is going to work and doing the best they can, like most of us. Being young and unlikely to die from this becomes a superpower and a moral obligation. Or that's how Sequoia sees it. I feel really weird about that. Um, I mean, a little, I mean, maybe a little conflicted because I think maybe as like, maybe if I was like younger in the field, like, like as a resident or a medical student, I'd be like, oh, like, this is an honor to be able to like help and do what I want to do, but like, or sorry, not do what I want to do, but like to help other people and to be there in this trying time and to be um, 
you know. It is an honor to do all those things. But one of the very strange things that's happening is they're asking physicians to volunteer their time. They're not asking any other health professionals to volunteer their time, but physicians for whom this is their job. Like the New York City Marathon, it's a fun event and you volunteer for maybe two to four hours of your time and you know, you're helping healthy people if they have an issue or by standards if they have the issue, you're there to basically stabilize if they need stabilizing and then get them to a hospital. But like that is different than working 12 hour days with like covered in PPE and constantly like at threat. Like every patient now we just assume has coronavirus. Which means every physician is at risk when caring for them of themselves getting coronavirus. And some physicians are older and at increased risk themselves. Oh, and yeah, like, would you volunteer to work at the grocery store? (laughs) And no, this isn't the Park Slope food co-op. Would you volunteer to work at a grocery store, which was the place that you already worked for your job? No. Just pick up a few extra hours for free. We're asking physicians to risk their lives to go to their own jobs and do them for free. The thing that is their job, that they're supposed to get paid for, and that everyone else there is getting paid to do. (sighs) If I have immunity, then I can see the children. I'm going to do something a little weird here because I, at the end of the show, just couldn't stand to read the credits after the end of this particular show. So I'm going to do them in advance of the end of the show so we can just let that end the way it ends. Remotely Possible is a show by and in some ways for the team at Brooklyn Minds. I'm Owen Muir and I'm one of your hosts. The show is produced by Self Disclosure Productions. Our logo is by Cortex Creations. Our CEO is the fearless and now better from COVID-19, Dr. Carlene McMillan. Today's guests are the unnamed emergency medicine doctor who would otherwise get in trouble with hospital administration and our amazing TMS tech, Sequoia. Greyhorse is our communications firm. They have big plans, bold ideas, and a commitment to equality. And that's when we share. Our music is by the band Jason Finch who have a brand new record available on Spotify and other places. It's called The City of Woe. Check it out. W-O-E. I would like to thank Erica Mitten. I have a lot to learn from her. She's brilliant. Our TMS manager, Natasha, flexible and always prioritizes the care of her team and her techs, which is really important. Thank you, guys. The whole team's great, to be honest, but thank you, too, especially. And now, the end of the show. Um, 
it's a little eerie. There's nobody outside. <laughs> There's nobody. Um, and uh, when you do pass by someone, there's kind of like, you kind of give yourself space between them for sure. And then everything is closed. Like there's food places open, but a lot of places are closed and it's odd. The unemployment rate hit 10% this week. So maybe not being paid your job isn't that abnormal for a lot of us now anyway. It's like being furloughed, but still working. So the government's going to be giving away billions and trillions of dollars, and nothing is going to be normal. Nothing. We're all going to have to figure out what to do when this is all over, and things aren't going to look the same. is going to do. I love contemporary art, but they're laying off and furloughing all their staff, essentially. So what are we going to do? What's New York going to look like? Broadway is gone for a quite a bit of time. I think capitalism runs on labor and the labor of all of us combined and it matters. And even if you don't think it does or you think it's just you're outside the system, we all sort of are intertwined. I'm curious as to what New York is going to look like in a year or two years or five or seven. Is New York over? I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely changing. All of us are going to have to give more than we thought we had to give. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to yous. Happy birthday, dear Trent and Quinn. Happy birthday to you. If I have a meeting, then I can see the children. Rarely have I been one to reference the children. I mean, I am a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, so I care about kids. But I haven't been away from mine for this long. Uh, maybe ever. They're with their grandparents, so they're safe. Mm, yeah. When will I be able to see the children? Two weeks. From now? Mm, from when you start having symptoms. Oh, that was a while ago. I can't miss their birthday. Happy birthday, kids. Mom and Dad love you. And because of that, all of us are going to try to put together a world that's better than the one we had before all this. That's what I'm telling myself. We've got to be nicer. We've got to be more giving. We've got to be smarter about all this. Because if it can all just fall apart because of a virus, my kids are in trouble. So are yours. So is everyone. 
and we can't let that happen.